Luke 24, 36 through 49. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And the repentance for forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. I broke my Britney Spears microphone, so they have been moved to the handheld. I can't be trusted with nice things. <laughs> Well, again, welcome everyone. It's so good to have you. Um, we are in a series right now that will carry us through the season of Lent. And we're calling this series At One. And throughout this time together, what we're doing is we are exploring the theological idea of the atonement. Atonement is that biblical and theological word that describes the death of Jesus. And what we're trying to do and what the word atonement is trying to describe is why did Jesus die and why is it good news? We believe you can see it, you can hear it in our songs, you can see it in our imagery, in our iconography. We believe that the cross is central to the Christian faith, that it is central to our expression and our theology and our articulation of the Christian faith. And yet, I think sometimes it is hard for us to answer that question, why did Jesus die? And why is it actually good news? So we're going to explore this question, continue exploring this question. And we started last week laying some important groundwork, foundational ideas, and I want to return to them just for a moment so that we're on the same page. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, Christ died for sins. This is the historic, universal, as written in the Apostles' Creed that we said together, definition of what atonement is. Christ died for our sins to make us one with God. Atonement means literally at one And in one sense, that definition of atonement is the whole story. It's the thing we know clearly. It is what the universal historic church has agreed on, that Christ died for sins to make us one with God. We compared it to a diamond, that as you look at a diamond in its wholeness, it's simple and beautiful and big and vibrant, just as you look at it from a distance. But as you explore that idea, it's kind of like when you take a diamond and you look at it from its sides and its angles and its different places, that there's these other parts to the story that make up that statement. 
So we broke it down into a few different categories here that I want to show you. As Christians, we believe the atonement is a part of the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus has revealed God to us and accomplished God's saving work in his life, death, and resurrection. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Atonement, Jesus' death on the cross, is a part of that story, but it's not the only part of that story. Resurrection is also a part of that story. Incarnation is also a part of that story. Kingdom is a part of that story. Atonement means at one minute. Christ has died to make us at one with Jesus. That's simple, amazing, beautiful. Then as we read the biblical narrative, we find throughout the story biblical descriptions of what is happening in atonement. A biblical description is an image or a story or a metaphor that helps us understand what's happening in atonement. So, for example, Jesus is sometimes referred to as the Lamb of God. That's an image, a description that helps us understand atonement. Jesus will describe his work as seeking and saving that which is lost, like a good shepherd who chases after sheep, as a woman who looks for a lost coin. Those are images, descriptions of atonement. Those descriptions help us understand the bigness and the beauty of the cross. And then from those biblical descriptions, human authors have constructed atonement theories, which are frameworks or ideas to help us understand how did the atonement occur. These theories are good, they are beautiful, they are helpful, but this is the part that I really want to articulate one more time. They are not Bible. They are good, they are right, they are helpful, they are written by human theologians post the completion of Scripture to help us understand what's happening in atonement. And the reason I bring this up is because I have never seen any other issue be so divisive in the church more than atonement theories. Because what happens is that our theories often get elevated to the place of biblical descriptions, and worst of all, our atonement theories often get elevated to the place of gospel. So we have to get our categories right if we're going to talk about atonement. Atonement is big, it's beautiful. The Apostle Paul calls it mysterious. And if we think that we know with such certainty what that mystery is, we have wandered into territory we don't belong. It is a mystery. So as we talk about atonement, we should do so with humility and wonder and unity. It's why we began with the Apostles' Creed. What is it that holds us together in this story? So throughout this series, what we're going to do is spend our time in this third category of biblical descriptions. I circled it in case you, you know, <laughs> you needed the help. We're going to live here in the category of biblical descriptions. All throughout the Bible, we get these amazing images, metaphors, stories, and descriptions of the atonement, lost and found, Lamb of God, victory over sin, death, and Satan, these images that help us understand what Jesus is accomplishing. So we're going to live there in the descriptions and in the images of atonement. But today, to help us understand these images and these descriptions, these stories of atonement, we're going to talk about the story of atonement, the big story that is playing out throughout the entire biblical narrative. The passage that we had read for us this morning by Caroline comes from Luke 24. And after the resurrection, Jesus is with his disciples, 
I love that text because they are afraid they've seen a ghost, right? They're like, who the, what are you? Jesus is like, it's chill, hold up. And then he begins to explain to them the significance of his work, and he does so in deeply storied ways through a narrative that has been going for a long time. This is what Jesus says to his disciples. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. Everything written about me in the law, from Moses to the prophets and the Psalms, this is a shorthand way of saying the whole Old Testament, all of it, everything that's been written about me, this story that's been being told must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He said to them, this is what is written. This is the story. Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. Jesus is telling us that the work of the cross is like the climax of a good narrative. And like any story, it has an introduction, an inciting incident, it has plot, it has characters, it has development. And if we miss those features of the story, like any story, we will misunderstand the story. If we just jump to the middle of the climax, you're like, who is Luke? I don't know this character. We miss the development, the plot, and what makes it good news. And it's from this narrative, this story that's playing out throughout the Bible, that our descriptions of atonement make sense. It's where most of them are located and rooted is in the story developing. For example, Paul says in Colossians 2.17, he's talking about old Hebrew religious practices, and he says this, these practices, notice this word, are a foreshadowing. That's story language. They foreshadow something. They point to something. What do they point to? Well, the body that casts the shadow is Christ. So our images of atonement, our descriptions, our metaphors, our stories, they come from within a big story. And if we want to understand what they mean and why they are good news, we need to understand the whole story. That's a big task to talk about the whole biblical story. So buckle up, we're going to be here till Tuesday. (laughs) Now what we're going to do today is we're going to hit a few major story beats, so to say. Big moments in the narrative that will help us understand its outline, its trajectory, and its journey, so that I think in the weeks to come, we can understand how those descriptions fit within that bigger moment. So first up... How does this story begin? Well, like all good stories, it begins in the beginning. The biblical story begins in Genesis chapter 1 with the creation of the world. And this is a moment that is easy to get sidetracked in and to begin to have conversations about how the world was created or debates about evolution and creationism. Those are good conversations that totally miss the point. Genesis 1 is less a science textbook, and it is far more a love letter to humans to invite them to belong somewhere. In this story, it says that our good God, who is at the center of the universe, creates a good world, and he imbues it with life, potential, goodness, and the raw materials for you and I to participate in and to make into something 
new. And then right in the middle of that world, God places us. This is what the text says, Genesis 1, verse 27 through 28. God created humanity in God's own image. In the divine image, he created them. Male and female, God created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fertile and multiply, fill the earth and master it. Take charge of all of it. Monsieur, this is a foundational truth for understanding the biblical story and for understanding atonement and for understanding your own life. You have been made in the image and likeness of God. The most fundamental truth of human nature is that you are like God, that you've been made in God's image, imbued with dignity, value, worth, and creative potential. No matter what other story has been told over you, the truest one is that you have been made in the image and likeness of God. The Greek word for image is icon, which I love. It's like a little picture, a little description. You are a little representative of God in the world. Created with value and with purpose to join God's work in the world. Theologian Scott McKnight has this very beautiful description of this. He says this, to be an icon or an image bearer means first of all to be in union with God. Second, it means to be in communion with others. Out of the community of God, God creates image bearers to be in community. We see that right in Genesis 1.27. But third, it means to participate God with God in his creating. This is the mandate that comes in verse 28. It's to participate with God in creating, ruling, speaking, naming, ordering in his variety and his beauty, his location, his partnering, his resting. What you see God do, we're invited to do with him. Thus an icon is God-oriented, self-oriented, others-oriented, and cosmos-oriented. Come on. How good is that? How big is that? To be an image bearer means to be made like God, oriented towards all of it in his creativity and wisdom and beauty, speaking, resting, creating like and with God and one another. Monsieur, that's what it means to be human. That's what it means to be you. In all the diversity and beauty of your gifts, you are an image bearer. To be human at its most basic is to be rooted, connected, oriented towards God, self, others, and the cosmos. It's important that we begin here and start here and root ourselves in this idea because so much of atonement and what we're going to talk about in this story and in the weeks to come is all about restoring us to our true identity. When we use language like renew or restore or renewed creations— the biblical writers have in their mind this image of you as an image bearer. The reclamation of your true identity, the reclamation of your true purpose in the world around you. The Bible talks about renewing, it's having this in the back of the mind. 
You are an image bearer, an icon of the divine, created to live in the presence of God and in right relationship with yourself and others and the world, full of creative purpose. That's how this story begins. That's how this story begins. In the goodness and abundance of a good and abundant creator. Now, if you've read the story, you know that it doesn't stay that way. Spoiler alert. In Genesis 3, we move into our second story beat, the next movement of the narrative. And in Genesis chapter 3, the story goes awry as our spiritual ancestors, our proto-parents, reject God and God's design. Like the prodigal son, if you've read that parable, our proto-parents ask for the world and all that is in it to be without God. And God, who is never coercive, consents. Allowing us to make the world in our own image according to our own purpose. And here the problem emerges in the biblical story. The problem that atonement is going to try to address. The problem the Bible will often call sin. I want to take a moment to talk about sin and what sin is. Because sin is one of those ideas that comes with so much, pretty fairly, cultural baggage. I think sometimes the way that sin has been described or defined in religious contexts as, as some kind of like arbitrary moral infraction. I think is often how we've described sin. I was meeting with somebody this week, and she asked me this question, point blank, will God send me to hell if I don't get baptized? I think that's a tragic and heartbreaking question, but I think it illustrates the way sin and God can often be pictured Think of God almost like a punitive judge who has like a binder open with your life in it and is like carefully reviewing to see how you've adhered to some moral law. When you don't, you get a check mark, and when you do, you, you get a smiley face sticker. Measuring and weighing the moral decisions of your life. That's a painful image of God. It's a painful and problematic image of God, one that many of us have had and one that many of us are currently healing from. But it is also a reduction of what sin is in the Bible. It reduces what sin is, the concept, the idea, the actual thing that is the problem in the story. And in reducing what sin is, it also reduces how good the news is that atonement has happened. Now, it may seem strange to say that it is more serious, but I think it's actually very helpful for us that we see that the Bible sees sin as something more serious than abstract moral infractions. So with that said, how does the Bible understand sin? Well, sin, like atonement, only makes sense in the context of a story. And it's a story that we are playing out right now with Genesis 1 as the bedrock. We are image bearers made to be in right relationship with God, self, others, and the world around us participating in God's work. Sin, then, is the fracturing or the breaking 
or the corrupting of our identity, relationship, and purpose. It is when an image bearer is made to be less than an image bearer. It is when the story that is told over you reduces you to something less, or when the story is about supremacy in something more than being an image bearer. It is when your ability or your actions are not true to who you really are as God's image bearer. I have three quotes that I want to read from you from various theologians to help me articulate this point. I've given you the uh, source material, so if you want to cite me and check my sources, you can. The first one comes from theologian Cornelius Plantinga Jr., and he says this, Sin is culpable shalom-breaking. Shalom being God's design for creation and redemption. Shalom is a Hebrew word for peace, but it means more specifically or more broadly flourishing. Goodness. Theologian Wolfhart Pannenberg, which is just the coolest name. (laughs) Wolfhart. Pitched it to Tori and she was like, nope. Wolfhart Morrison to change my name to. That's what I was asking. (laughs) Wolfhart Johnny Morrison. Wolfhart said, sin is the universal failure to achieve our human destiny. The universal failure to achieve our human destiny. And Scott McKnight, the New Testament scholar we've already quoted, says this, which I think is very, very helpful. Sin is the hyper-relational distortion and corruption of the icons, image bearers, relationship with God, self, others, and the world. What we're seeing through these examples and these definitions is that sin is the disruption, the distortion, or the corruption of goodness, love, relationship, and divine purpose. And it is hyper-relational meaning it moves in all directions. It can move towards God in our actions or towards others in the world in our actions, but it can even move towards ourselves. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that we can sin against ourselves. We can hurt ourselves, harm ourselves, reduce our own image-bearing. But it's hyper-relational, so it also means it can be what we experience. The ancient church father, St. Irenaeus, talked about sin as the original wound. Yes, it's a thing that we do, but it also hurts and harms us, causes pain and damage, and out of that pain and damage, sometimes we operate in pain and damaged ways. So it can be what we experience, it can be what we do, But it can also be in the systems and structures we build. Scott McKnight goes on to describe it this way. He says, a hyper-relational theory of sin clarifies systemic corruption. Cracked icons, when they coagulate, I don't know why he did this. Cracked icons, when they coagulate into clusters, create conduits for corruption. They do so 
by creating systems that break down equity and love in various relationships. So sin, in this sense, it can hyper-relational, moving in all directions. It's something we do to others, to ourselves, to God, to the world. It's something that happens to us, that wounds us, that hurts us, that reduces us. It is something that can get built into the systems and institutions of our world, and it can be the stories we tell over ourselves, that are told over ourselves, that reduce us, limit us, or falsely exalt us. For me, this is where this whole concept becomes so helpful. Sin as arbitrary moral infraction is not a helpful concept. It's not a true concept. It's not in Scripture. But sin as a real problem of actually denying what it is that we are supposed to be and doing in the world becomes so much more clarifying and helpful. It's why the Bible deals with sin with such urgency. And that urgency, please hear me, that urgency around sin in Scripture is never to do with punishment. This is what the Bible says, John 1 verse 4 Perfect love dispels fear. John goes on to say, why? Because fear has to do with punishment. The reason the Bible has urgency around sin is because it causes real harm. Because it is actually a reduction of your image-bearing abilities. Because it is actually a reduction of the world's potential. Because it is actually a reduction or a corruption of another. It's also why Jesus has such compassion towards sin throughout the New Testament. Does it make him angry? Yes, as it should. But he has such compassion because he sees the real harm that is caused. This is what gives this concept, this is what gives sin and atonement so much urgency. I think the final reason that it's so helpful to have this conversation and to flex through what sin is is because it helps us understand why atonement is such good news. In 1 Corinthians 15, we've cited this passage a lot. Paul says that Christ died for sins. That word for is doing a lot of work. Christ died for sins. Because sin is hyper-relational, moving in all directions, because it can get built into the systems, institutions of our world, because it can be a wound we carry or a story we inherited, because it moves in all directions, hear me, atonement has to move in all directions for it to be good news. And the good news is, it does. Christ died for sins in all ways, in all directions. Sin needs to be forgiven. And that is such good news. It is such good news that my attempts, my actions, my thoughts that have distorted the image of God in me and in others that have rejected God's purpose for my life and for the world around me, it is such beautiful news that it is forgiven. It is forgiven. 
Because sin also gets into the systems and structures of our world, atonement is also about the overthrow of evil and the uprooting of injustice. It's good news to the systems of our world. And because sin is a thing we experience and that causes woundedness, atonement includes healing and wholeness. That's why Jesus calls himself the great physician. And why the root word of salvation is to heal. Atonement moves in all directions. For the whole person, the whole world, and everything in between. This is why it's so important that we get our atonement story right. Because it's such a good story. And it speaks such good news to our stories. Now this leads to the next story beat. What does God do about sin? What does God do about the problems that have emerged in the world and in this narrative? Now obviously we're going to live here for the next couple of weeks so I'm just going to provide three movements, three sub-movements. I've got a lot of movements happening in this sermon now. That will hopefully frame and make sense of the images and descriptions that are to come. So what does God do about sin? Here's the first thing. God pursues to restore us to at-one-ment relationship. Atonement means... At one minute, oneness with God. God is pursuing to restore us to at one relationship. If you were with us last week, we said in our core foundational ideas that God is just like Jesus. And on the cross, we get a perfect snapshot of who God is. The cross atonement, that moment of atonement is the revelation of God par excellence, as theologian Bradley Jurisic says. The reason I bring this up, though, is that it is a reflection, an image of who God has always been. It is a reflection of what God is always like. And we see this in the biblical story. Sin enters into the story in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve reject God, and sometimes the image that we have in our mind is that God rejects them likewise, but that is not what happens in the story. God pursues them. God comes to them. God clothes them at cost to himself so that they would not feel naked or ashamed, and then God promises to rescue the world through them. This sounds like gospel. As you just keep reading in the story, the next moment is that Cain kills his brother Abel. And again, sometimes we read that story as though God then pushes Cain away. But if you actually read the story, God comes to Cain, marks him in covenant relationship so that Cain cannot be harmed for the sins that he has caused. God pursues him, enters into relationship with him. When humans cluster together to form the infrastructure of exploitation that is the kingdom of Babylon in Genesis 11, God comes to them. Calls a man named Abraham into relationship with himself, covenants to him, and promises to save the world through him. 
When Israel worships idols and turns from God again and again, God gives to them, entering into relationship. At each moment in this story, when humans reject God and the image of God that they bear, God pursues them to restore them. God endures whatever cost is incurred by their separation. God absorbs whatever pain, whatever loss, whatever debt. To be in right relationship with his people. On the cross, we see the perfect snapshot of who God has always been. A God who always pursues. A God who always makes way for right relationship. And a God who always pays and endures the cost. So God pursues to restore us to at one in him. Number two, God forms a people of at one Sin is hyper-relational, which means that it fractures our relationship with God, but it also fractures our relationship with one another. And in response to that, God forms a people united by his presence with them. And we have so many beautiful examples of this that play out through the biblical story. The family of Abraham in Genesis 11, the people of Israel, the kingdom of God in Jesus' language, or the church in the New Testament language. In each of these moments, in each part of this narrative, God is restoring us to right relationship with one another. It's a horizontal kind of reconciliation. And it leads Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 to make this beautiful declaration saying, Christ is our peace. He made both Jew and Gentile into one group. With his body, he broke down the barrier of hatred that divided us. With his body, in his atonement, he broke down the barrier that divided us. At the heart of Jesus' work on the cross is the formation of a people united in him. Scott McKnight says it this way. Atonement, if we read the Bible with its own emphasis, is about creating communities of faith wherein God's will is done and lived out. From Genesis 12 to Revelations 22, the focus of God's redemptive work, the atoning work, is about the community of faith. It's what we participate in and practice right here, right now, together. That we have been made at one in Jesus. And then number three. God renews image bearers through at one with Christ. All throughout the story, God is at work to renew our identity and to restore our purpose as image bearers. When God calls Abram, for example, in Genesis chapter 12, he calls him his people and gives him a mission. When God calls the people of Israel into relationship with himself in Exodus 19, he says, you are a holy people and you will be my priests, my representative, my image in the world around you. These moments foreshadow, point to the work of Jesus 
where we come in the New Testament to Paul exclaiming in Romans 6 verse 4, Therefore, we were buried together with Jesus through baptism into his death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too can walk in newness of life. Atonement incorporates us into Christ's life. It makes us participants in his death and in his resurrection. And the image that always accompanies this is baptism. This is interesting that the question that began some of this is, will God send me to hell if I don't get baptized? Because it so misses what's happening at the heart of baptism. In the atonement, we are incorporated into Jesus' life. And if we look at Jesus' baptism, we get this picture that I can't stop thinking about in terms of how it relates to today. And Jesus is baptized. He enters into the water. He emerges from the water. And a voice from heaven, the Father declares, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. To be baptized into Christ is to receive the same announcement. It is to be restored to our true identity. And that is a deeply mysterious and beautiful thing that we'll explore in more depth next week. But to enter into the life and the death of Christ is to be renewed as an image bearer. To have our identity re-articulated over us. These are my people, my beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Monsieur, this is the story of atonement. In brief. There are so many more things that we could say, so many more ideas that we could talk about, but we can't say much less. We can't say much less because this is God's story for us. And it's a story that we enact and participate in and practice every single week as we gather at this table. And when Jesus gave the disciples the practice of gathering at this table, something very interesting happens, and it's on a very interesting day. Jesus is with his disciples on the night that he's betrayed, and it's the night of Passover, which is a deeply storied evening in Hebrew imagination because it's the celebration of their rescue from Egypt. Israel is delivered from slavery in Egypt. God comes to them, rescues them, pulls them into the promised land to be his people in relationship with him. And Jesus uses this night to break bread, to share the cup, and to tell his disciples that these practices are a reminder of the story of your liberation. Of a new kind of Passover. Where God pursues, rescues, restores their presence, forms a people, and calls us his own. Jesus does this practice and this story to declare to us.
So, Mr., as you come to this table, would you come bearing that good news story with you? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the good news of your story. That is a story written throughout history, on the pages of our Bible, on the pages of time. And it is a story that declares again and again that you pursue, that you form us into a people, and that you're renewing us in your identity as true image bearers. God, would that shape how we think about everything else, the atonement and sin and the good news? Would it lead us to this table? To know that as we come here, as we receive grace, we are participating in this big good news story. So God, help us to understand, help us to receive it as our own. In your good and wonderful name we pray. Amen.